All right, good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Uh, this Sunday morning, as Stan mentioned earlier, this is an exciting weekend in the life of my family uh, as we prepare Reagan and I to be ordained tomorrow evening at our annual conference. And this morning, my message comes out of the spirit uh, of this weekend and what it means for Reagan and I both. November 9th, 2010, was a normal day by all accounts. President Obama uh, visited Indonesia for an economic trip. Uh, Conan O'Brien was back on TV on TBS after his failed run at NBC, uh, thanks to the not-too-keen-to-retire Jay Leno. Uh, Advice columnist Carolyn Hacks coached a woman in need of some help with her enabling parents and spoiled siblings. It was a pretty boring day in the news cycle, to be honest. Not a day that you'd likely remember. November 9th, 2010 was also the day that I got this message on Facebook. It said this, any chance you might be interested in coming to work for me? We are looking for someone part-time who loves kids and has good computer skills, very flexible hours, and pretty good pay. Let me know what you think. Signed, Jamie. Jamie was a former co-worker of mine who was at the time the director of the children's ministry here at Lover's Lane, and she was offering me a job. Turns out November 9th, 2010 was not so boring after all, not for me anyways. That message on Facebook put me on a path that has brought me to this moment standing before you today. And tomorrow night, Reagan and I will be ordained as elders in full connection with the North Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church. That's a mouthful. And in keeping with the theme of tomorrow night and and everything I've been thinking about for the weeks leading up, I'd like to reflect this morning on what I think it means to be called, equipped, and ordained for ministry. Not just in my own life, but in the lives of all members of the body of Christ. Consider this morning... A love letter, if you will, to Lover's Lane. My love letter. First, what does it mean to be called? The book of 1 Kings chapter 19 verses 11 through 13 say this. It's a familiar story to many of us in the room, I'm sure. This is when Elijah is being persecuted. He's running and he's trying to find the voice of God, trying to find God's presence. And God says this to his prophet. Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. Don't worry. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle. He went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice that said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? For six years now, Reagan and I have been working through the process of ordination. 
beginning with the sit-down conversation with the SPRC, Staff Parish Relations Committee, here at Lover's Lane six years ago, where they asked us a question that has been asked of us many, many, many times in the years since. Tell us about your call to ministry. I've gotten pretty good at sharing this story. I've got it down to about five minutes flat. You want to hear it? So I grew up in the Methodist church. My grandparents are here today. I won't embarrass them. Uh, Mimi and Pops. Pops is the six foot four one and Mimi's a little bit shorter than she is. They kind of stick out in the crowd. And uh, I would spend summers with them in Georgia, in Greensboro, Georgia. And I'd go to VBS at Greensboro United Methodist Church. And, and I was raised in the faith there. I was also raised in the faith at my own home church, starting in the third grade, a Methodist church where I grew up. And... Uh, I felt a call to ministry when I was in youth group. I went to a youth ministry conference and there was a band playing worship music and I was caught up in it and and I was loving everything about my life in that moment. I loved my church. I loved that worship. I loved the message. I loved being with God. And something in me said, Scott, you were made for this. I heard something in me saying, Scott, you were made for this. You, you need to be worshiping God, praising God, serving God in some capacity in your life. And I didn't know what that looked like. At the time, I thought maybe it meant youth ministry because what I understood youth pastors to do was eat pizza and play games. I've since learned they do quite a bit more, but that sounded good to me at the time. So I go to college up at UNT, and, and like many people who hear a call to ministry, I am... Um, I push back, decide to run a little bit from it and, and, and go and, and study English. And I think I'm going to be an English teacher. That is until I began to student teach in an English classroom and began to grade English papers. <laughs> and something in me say, said, Scott, you weren't made for this. And it wasn't because I didn't like to teach, but because it didn't feel like the right subject. And so at the same time, my home church which I'd worked at through college for a few years. My home church offered me a full-time position as the youth director. And I thought, aha, this is God's sign. I need to go and be a youth director, just like I thought when I was a teenager. I said, yes, I'll take it. And it was terrible. It was. It was a beautiful church, a good church full of wonderful people. But it was 2008, and the financial collapse had just happened. And the church I grew up in was a church where families needed two incomes to get by. And if you've ever peered behind the curtain of leadership in church, you know that churches are kind of like families. And that when financial stress hits a church, just like when financial stress hits a family, conflict and stress abound. And it was a hard time to be at that church. Hard like it would be to be at any church during a season like that, but hard especially because this was my home church. These were adults who had raised me in the faith, who had been my Sunday school teachers, who had been pillars of my own personal faith, and now they were acting like people. I didn't like that. And after 18 months of stress and conflict and and watching my pillars begin to crumble, I had a very tenuous relationship with the church, not my home church, but the church. And I walked in my boss's office and I quit without a backup strategy, without another job lined up. I walked in like a really, really not smart 22-year-old, maybe 21-year-old and said, yeah, I'm done. 
And I went and I called my mom and I said, mom, I just quit my job. And she did what any responsible mother would do in that moment. She said, what are you thinking? And then an hour later, she called me back and said, let's get coffee and talk about this. And then I did what every 22-year-old wants to do. I moved back in with my parents. Living the dream. And I looked for work as an English teacher. And if you're a teacher or married to one or know one, you know that right around in 2010 when the bubble burst, there were not a lot of teaching jobs to go around. And so I couldn't find a teaching job. For months I was unemployed. And it got so bad that my parents were beginning to ask for rent. That's when you know it's not getting good. Like, hey, when are you going to start paying us something? And I'm sitting on my bed late one night. I say my bed. It was the guest bedroom by that point, but I was just staying there. (laughs) Staying on the guest bed. Lights are off in the room. And, you know, I'd wanted to find God's voice at some point in those years that I'd worked for my home church, especially in the 18 months that were so difficult. Because it felt like I'd had the earthquake. It felt like I'd had the firestorm. And I just didn't hear God's voice in any of that. And I sat on that bed in the stillness and quiet that night. I did something I hadn't done for quite a long time. I didn't realize how long it had been until I did it. I prayed. Not a big prayer, not an ornate prayer. Really a prayer of desperation that said, God, if you really believe that I was made for this, whatever this means, I I need you to give me something like a paycheck would be nice. Let's start with that. And, And if you know me at all, you know that I can be a bit of a skeptic or a cynic. And one thing I can't stand is cheesy testimonies. I love to poke holes in cheesy testimonies, or I used to. You see, I also believe in a God with a great sense of humor. And what did God do? He gave me a cheesy testimony. Because I pray that prayer that night. God, just send me anything, literally anything. I will take it, God. And the next day was November 9th, 2010. And that morning I got a message from Jamie with a job offer to come work at a kids ministry at a weird sounding church called Lover's Lane. And I said, God, I didn't say kids ministry. But I did, I went. And that was the moment that my life began to change. When I found my way onto this campus, everything about my life began to change. I began to discern a call to ministry and to begin to hear God's voice loudly and clearly upon my life and the life of my wife, who I also met here on this campus. Everything in my life changed. Clarity abounded. And out of my own personal story of what it meant to be called into ministry, I know three things this this morning. Number one, I know this about how God calls us and places calls upon our life. Number one, God has said or will say to everyone in this room, you were made for this. Now, I don't know what this is, but if you've heard this message, you know what it sounds like. And if you haven't, trust me, it sounds good. But you will receive a message loud and clear that says you were made for this. Because I believe that God is a creator first and foremost. I believe that God stitches us together before we're ever known to this world. I believe that God understands us in an intimate way. And God knows what you were made for. 
And once you understand that, once you hear that, it's like getting a bug in your brain and you just got, you got to scratch it and figure it out until you finally get there. Number two, I know that God is not always in the earthquakes or the firestorms as much as we may wish that God was. God is frequently found in the aftermath, after the storm has passed, after the light is snuffed out, after all hope is lost. That's when God's moment of redemption begins and the still small voice is heard. And lastly, I know and I believe that God calls us even when we are hesitant to follow that call. Amen. Have you ever gone running from a call in your life? I'm so thankful to be leave in a God who pursues us in the midst of our running away and a God who forgives us and extends grace when we're finally ready to say yes. That's what I think it means to be called. Number two, what does it mean to be equipped? Paul says this in his letter to the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus, beginning in chapter four, verse seven. He says, but each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. One of my favorite quotes comes from a French author named Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. I hope I got that close to right for the French specialists in the room. He says this, If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work and give orders. Don't do that. Instead, teach them, to yearn for the vast and endless sea. Lover's Lane is a church that teaches people how to yearn for the vast and endless sea. Lover's Lane is a church blessed and anointed by God to equip every single saint who walks through its doors for ministry, to teach them not only how to do the things that the church needs to be done, but how to have a love of God that leads us into whatever ministry God sets before us. I've experienced this firsthand in my almost eight years here. And there's one story in particular I'd like to share. It's a small story, but it meant a great deal to me. When I was first moving from kids ministry to adult ministry about four years ago, Stan had assigned me to lead, uh, along with Ted Campbell, the Renew Service. This is a Wednesday evening communion service. We like to say it is the best kept secret at Lover's Lane. (laughs) Uh, It's a Wednesday evening service at 6 p.m. in Ship Chapel. And every week we sing a couple songs, very simple, repetitive. We hear a short message, 10 minutes or less. And we receive communion with the full liturgy every single week. And these people really love each other. During the passing of the peace, they get up and hug every single person in the room. So make sure that you're a hugger when you show up to renew. So when I was assigned to renew, I was young and excited. And it was my first chance to work with adult worship. And I had all of these ideas. And I I came into this worship service. And if I'm honest, I didn't like it. 
I didn't get it. So they sing the same songs like every week. And they go on and on. And they, they do the same liturgy every week. And, and you know, it's just, the, it's so slow and quiet and simple. I, just, I could really help them out, I think. So I had a list of ideas, all these wonderful ways I was going to change this service that I thought needed changing because I didn't get it. So I start to change some things. I bring some energy and some, and shake things up. And I'm thinking it's going so great. And then I get a call from a couple of our renew members who said, can we meet with you? And I said, yes. Because I'm sure they couldn't wait to tell me how wonderful everything was going. (laughs) They come into my office. These women are much older than me. And they look terrified. Because I'm the pastor. And I'm thinking, you're scared of me? You ought to be telling me what to do. And they said, now pastor, we we don't want to tell you what to do. (laughs) And, And in the nicest words they possibly could say it in, they told me they hated all my changes. They did. And they said it so nicely and with so much care. But here's what I heard them say, especially one of of their stories and why they loved Renew exactly the way Renew was. Why that service being slow and repetitive and contemplative and ritualistic, why that meant so much to them. One of them said this. She said, Scott, I've got Parkinson's. And so it causes me to, to tremble, to tremor quite a bit. And... When I walk into Renew once a week for 45 minutes and we sing those calming songs and we hear those repetitive words and we allow silence to take root and we hug one another, I can feel myself growing stiller. I can feel my body growing still. And you know, when I was in seminary, they taught us about communion They told us that at the table we get means of grace. The real presence of Christ is with us. They didn't teach us a dadgum thing in seminary. I didn't know what means of grace meant. I didn't know what the real presence of Christ meant until I had that conversation. To see a woman whose body was literally changed by the grace of God that she found in those 45 minutes. And I had the audacity to want to change that. This church has equipped me because the God's honest truth is, and Stan's going to love hearing this. I don't know that much. This church has equipped me time and time again to understand that there is a lot that I don't know. In that conversation, I understood tradition and ritual and respect in such a new way that I had not valued those things before. I didn't value ritual until I had that conversation. I didn't value communion the way I do now until I had that conversation. So many conversations like those, so many people in this church have equipped me personally to be a better person. When I was in the kids ministry, Pastor Bruce Hearn, who's this chaplain of our school, whom we all know and love, he taught me how to have capital J-O-Y, joy, as he says in church. 
Margaret Strother, who has been serving our twos classroom for over 20 years, she taught me what it meant to care and love the smallest among us. Amy Hart taught me what it means to share passion with Je- passion for Jesus with children from an early age. Amy Tucker, who many of us remember, was my first coworker. We shared an office. She taught me what it looked like to have unconditional love for every single child that walked through our doors and what it meant to unconditionally love the biggest drinks that Sonic could sell her. Reese Langdon, one of our students, our kids taught me things too. Reese Langdon taught me what it meant to bring my best energy to church. Haven Emery taught me what it means to walk through life looking to help those in need. When I moved and began working with adults, Royce Hall taught me how to have a passion for prison ministry and what freedom in Christ really looks like. Elisha Shamu Yarira and Ernest Natanga are worship leaders for Zimbabwe and Heart of Africa. They show me what it means to really worship God. Amen. Valerie Farmer, who many of you may or may not know, she's probably sitting at the welcome desk right now every single week without fail. She shows me what it means to be hospitable and to value service. The Knit Pearl Pray Group teaches me what it's like to pray in the midst of great tragedy. And then we have the best staff, the best staff. Reverend KX taught me what it means to have a love for missions and to put the church to work out in the world. Goni Mukarakate and Jacob Kiga show me what it means to look at the world through a global set of eyes. Jimmy Emery teaches all of us what it means to bring our best and to provide God our excellence in Sunday morning worship. Tom Hutspeth teaches me how to consider those who are easily overlooked or easily forgotten. Suzanne Fuquay, if you know her, holy goodness, she taught me how to pray. I did not know that Methodists laid on hands until I came to Lover's Lane and met Suzanne. That was a fun meeting in the hallway. Donna Whitehead, is there anybody in the church with more passion and boldness for ministry and who knows how to get it done? Rusty George, who hates that I'm talking about him, has taught me what it means to know that no job is beneath you And that a lot of hustle goes a long way in God's work. And Stan. Yeah, Stan knows how to preach. But we know that he's more than a preacher. Stan preaches with a pastor's heart. And he knows how to take really difficult stands. And maintain his role as a peacemaker in a diverse congregation. I know that I've left way too many people out. But the point is this. I know that I'm a better husband and man and father and pastor because God has used this church to equip me in my faith. The letter to the Ephesians, Paul makes clear that one of our primary tasks as a community of faith is to equip the saints. And you might be wondering, who are the saints? You. (laughs) This is the one rare moment where Paul is an optimist. He calls all of us saints in the making. But our call is not to simply be saints, it is to equip the saints, to build one another up as we seek to build up the kingdom of God. It's one of the reasons that Christ calls us into community, not only with himself, but also with each other, that we might aid one another in our effort to grow more Christ-like each and every day. That is why we are the church. And so who are the saints who have equipped you? Take a moment this morning, pause and reflect. Who are the saints who have made you into the man or the woman that you are today, who you can give thanks and name this morning as you approach the communion table? 
to consider who it is that God has set in your path to refine you and to equip you for ministry. Lastly, what does it mean to be ordained? It's a question I've wondered a lot about these last few weeks. In Peter's first letter, chapter 2, verses 2 through 10, he says this. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Further down, he goes on to say, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, now you have received mercy. So a few years back, several years ago, my great-grandmother passed away. This is my dad's dad's mom, if you want to know the family tree. And um, she'd battled Alzheimer's for a number of years. It was, it was time. And my dad and I went up to this tiny windswept town in Oklahoma uh, to a church to, for her funeral. And, and it's the, the town and church that her family had been at years and years ago. And um, the pastor who was there didn't know my great-grandmother And as he was eulogizing her, I think he thought he was trying to be nice when he said the following. He said, I believe the greatest call in this world is to be a pastor. And the second greatest call is to be a teacher. He was trying to give my great-grandmother a silver medal, I think. I think that's what he was trying to do. I really hated that funeral. I did. You're allowed to hate funerals occasionally, I think. I think you are. They didn't ask me that quiz in the interviews before ordination. I didn't like that funeral. I'll tell you why. Tomorrow night, I'm going to get ordained. Reagan's going to be ordained. And that's a special thing. And we take that calling and the covenant that we make with the gravity that they both deserve. But I don't think that being a preacher or a pastor is the highest calling. Because I don't think that pastors are the only ones ordained in the church. I don't think you have to be called reverend or wear a robe and a stole or go to seminary to be ordained either. Tomorrow night, they'll call me reverend and I'll wear a robe and a stole and I'll be recognized for my seminary training. And before the night is over, I'll kneel before the bishop and he'll lay his hands upon my head as he blesses and ordains me as an elder with the power vested in him as the bishop. And it will be a special moment. I want us to have a special moment this morning as well, though. A different kind of special moment. I want you to reach out and and take the hand or touch the shoulder of the person sitting next to you. And if you're sitting on your own, then you might have to scooch a little bit or reach behind your pew. Everybody find somebody. We're going to get to know each other just a little bit this morning. Reach out and grab a hand or grab a shoulder. In 1 Peter, Peter says that you... You are a royal priesthood. Not just the pastors, but the whole of the church. You are a royal priesthood chosen by God to be light bearers in the world around you. And it's really a profound bit of theology that leads to a radical rethinking of leadership within the Christian community. 
Peter lived in a Greek society where hierarchy and authority were seen as vitally important. There were higher calls than others. And he turned that on its head. He said, in essence, pastors are not the only priests. All believers carry the weight of the gospel and the truth of the light. And all who are in relationship with Jesus carry his power into the world around them. So I want you to look to one of the people that you're touching right now. Look them in the eye and say, you are ordained. Now, church, I want you to get into it. Look at the other person and say, you are a light bearer. That was pretty good. Y'all can let go now. Some of y'all were like, this is getting awkward. You don't need a fancy title or a robe or a degree to be ordained in this world. And there isn't one calling that is higher than another. All of us are called in different ways into ministry for the sake of the kingdom of God. And all of us are ordained by God to carry his light into the world. One of my favorite quotes by the late great Martin Luther King is on the subject of the value of all callings in life. And he says this. If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as a Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music, or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the host of heaven and earth will pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. No work is insignificant. All labor that uplifts humanity has dignity and importance and should be undertaken with painstaking excellence. This week, whether you find yourself cleaning up the world's problems or simply sweeping your own streets, do so with a passion and a care that would make the heavens themselves stop and take notice. Understand that you and me and all of us together have been called, equipped, and ordained for ministry in a myriad of ways that when they come together, equal the kingdom of God. To close I think back to that fateful message on November 9th, 2010, and I went back and I looked at my response to that message I got from Jamie. Do you want to hear what I said? I said, I'll be happy to talk about the job. Just need some more details and whatnot. (laughs) What? I'd been unemployed for four months. I couldn't pay rent to my parents. I didn't need details. She said it was pretty good pay. I should have said, yes, I'll sign up today. And besides, what kind of details would she have given me? I don't remember what the details were. Could she have said that I would have met Reagan in the office down the hall? Or that I would have discerned my call to ordain ministry or that I would have entered seminary or graduated from seminary, would she have told me that one of the details was having a girl, a beautiful daughter named Andy Jane? Would she have told me those kind of details? What kind of details did I need? So I guess to close, I just want to say thank you. Not just for my own ministry. I'll never be able to say thank you enough for that. I found my life here at 9200 Inwood Road. I want to thank you for being a church that calls and equips and ordains people for the work of God every 
single day. The thousands of people whom I've met on this campus, in and outside these walls, who enrich my life every single day. Thank you for being the kind of church that values the still small voice of God in the darkness that believes in equipping the saints for the power of the gospel and to understand what it means to be ordained as light bearers in the world around you. So wherever your ministry with God takes you, God bless you because we are all the church together. Amen.